0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Truth and Movies. Today, it's Shark versus Statham in director John Turtletub's schlocky horror, The Meg.
0: A living fossil. Thought to have been extinct over two million years.
1: We're off to Paraguay for middle-aged queer drama, The Heiresses. And, as the Winona rider Christian Slater Jem Heathers turns 30, we ask, does the extreme teen comedy still make an impression?
2: You inherit $5 million the same day aliens land on the Earth and say they're going to blow it up in two days. What do you do?
1: That's the stupidest question I've ever heard. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Greetings and salutations. Michael Leader here. We have no heathers in the studio today, but we do have a Hannah Woodhead of Little White Lies. Hi. And a Beth Webb. Hi, Michael. How are we doing today, guys?
3: I'm good. I'm raring to go. I'm excited.
2: Good week for movies. I'm very keen to get stuck in.
1: Well, let's chomp on this. (laughs) Up first, we have The Meg. A deep sea research team is trapped six miles under the ocean, and there's only one man who can save them Jason Statham. But what untold beasties have they uncovered at that nosebleed inducing depth? Could they have awakened a 65 foot shark, otherwise known as a megalodon?
0: There's a monster outside. What you people discovered is bigger than we ever thought possible. How big is that thing? It was the largest shark that ever existed. A living fossil. Thought to have been extinct for over two million years. Wrong. It's Megalodon. He's kidding, right?
1: A nice bit of Jason Statham there for our morning. <laughs> it's basically Jason Statham versus a massive shark. Hannah, is that what we're signing up for? Is that what we're looking forward to with this film?
3: I think that a lot of people are excited about this movie. I was excited about this movie. When it was announced two years ago, the question was, is Jason Statham going to punch a giant shark? And we're very close to finding out, you know? <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for anyone with regards to that, but I think it's it's slightly missold. I don't think it's quite oh. as... Jason Statham versus a giant shark as it could have been.
1: It's certainly more Jason Statham versus giant shark than um, the grey was Liam Neeson versus a pack of wolves. Yeah, true. This definitely delivers on that sort of schlocky Friday night takeaway pizza sort of thrills. Beth, would you agree?
2: Yeah, I think there was a good ratio of Statham to shark. Um, And, you know, part of the suspense was him essentially being chased by the shark. That's some of the like meatier parts of That's the, true. the film there are those kind of like by the skin of your neck moments that really give the film its kind of adrenaline.
1: Mm-hmm. Hannah, you're on record as being a Dwayne Johnson fan. And oh. it feels here that Jason Statham is very much moving into a similar realm.
3: Michael, I have many feathers in my cap. Um, <laughs> I, I, a long-held dream of mine is to have a podcast called Statham, where I just talk about Jason Statham.
1: <laughs> okay, I, uh,
3: I'm a big fan of his. It started with the movie uh, Crank Eye Voltage and ever mm-hmm. since then, you know, through Blitz, through Spy, which I think is an underrated comic oh, really, masterpiece. Yeah. He's the best. Thing in Spy and this could be a continuation of Spy this could be one of um, his character's side missions you know you can hear him going I punched a shark right in the face I like, ripped you know? off my right arm and punched the shark yeah. to death with my right arm this is the thing you know I think all the ingredients were there and the trailer for this was so great I mm. love you know they have uh, that you know, it's all very serious, and then Bobby Darren's Beyond the Sea kicks in. <laughs> it's just like, it's great. I think they were really going for that, like you say, that kind of schlocky 90s B movie, mm-hmm. like, but fun vibe. And I didn't necessarily get that from the actual film. Oh, really? I'm yeah, sorry. Okay. I I'm bigging it up, and then I just, it was kind of not what I was hoping it
1: was going to be. Oh, was it everything you were hoping for, Beth?
3: Because I'm not raised on
2: such a lean diet of (laughs) stone-cold trash, so... um, this is uh, I say with the most love. I'm all for a trashy movie. I, too, love Crank High Voltage. You know, there's nothing better than safe in in a hospital gown, kind of running through a hospital, (laughs) pointing a gun at everybody. But I don't get as much of an opportunity to watch those films as I'd like to. So for me, this was just giddy, gleeful Mm -hmm. entertainment at its finest. I thought... um, I really liked the always kind of play by numbers narrative. Like there's a you know, it's almost like level up script writing where, oh, but then there's something else and there's something bigger and something better every turn. And I mm-hmm. was I was there for it hugely. Um I mean it's not it's obviously a massively flawed film, but I think the more you take those flaws on the chin, the more you enjoy the film. So, you know, there may be flaws in the plot, although I do think it was a really plausible Backstory? So, um, so
1: let's go into some of this plot. This yeah. film has more plot than probably it needs, right? Yeah, so maybe. I think
3: they overthought
2: it. So there's <laughs> a,
1: this research facility out in the middle of the ocean that has been funded by Rain Wilson, who plays a sort of Elon Musk bro ah! broillionaire bro, type figure. You know, he's got a baseball cap and trainers and yeah, he's kind it's of, called
3: Morris. Yeah. Not not a particularly hip name, no, not really. <laughs>
1: But um in this research station which is uh, headed up by a, ch- a Chinese uh, science team and lots and lots of scientists it's quite a overstuffed cast so uh, many scientists oh yeah, yeah you
2: could have plucked a few out of there um, and some of these characters really are quite reductive which mm. I think is one of the biggest frauds of the film
1: but it's all just a big preamble for Statham coming on board as the only guy who has ever um, gone on a deep sea rescue He's mission been
3: swimming <laughs> <laughs> There is a great, um, for those who may not know as much about Jason Statham as I do, he was an Olympic diver and there's a great bit in the film where he goes, I don't dive anymore, which is
2: just (laughs) just, like so
3: great. Of course he does dive in the film, you know, that's the whole... there wouldn't be you, you know, there. Is, you're just yeah. waiting for him to get in the scene, and fight with the shark. Yeah. Um,
1: I find Statham such, still such a fascinating figure on screen because it is just almost like the, the bouncer down your local nightclub has been yeah. given the keys to Hollywood.
3: If you consider Dwayne Johnson the kind of like... Eyebrow raising, like you know, quippy charmer. I don't think Statham is anything like him. He's just a big grin, and he just grin yeah, on muscle. You know?
1: he, yeah, one thing he can do better than anyone else, and and he does it in this film, is wear form fitting jumpers. He's yes!
2: Got quite a oh wardrobe. my God, he has a great turtleneck in this. Movie. Yeah. There's like yeah. a charcoal grey ribbed jumper that caught my eye in particular. And a couple, um,
1: yeah. A couple of uh, yeah, like knitted sweatshirts and things. Yeah.
2: yeah, but he does get that kind of he gets kind of the Malcolm role in this. From you know, he's the life finds a way kind of guy, yeah. and he gives this really hilarious speech on the repercussions and and you should really trust Mother Nature. And um, this is what happens when you meddle with it.
1: There's an interesting conflict right at the heart of this film kind of linking to that theme. This is one of those big Hollywood movies that has major investment from Chinese financial backers and you have almost two films in one here. you right. have this 90s 80s throwback schlock fest where it feels that Statham, Rain Wilson, all the other uh, English language uh, speaking cast members are in on the joke uh, they're making trash. <laughs> but then you also have this Chinese thread with uh, you know the head of the research facility and his daughter who's almost sort of a love interest and they're playing it almost sincerely and they yeah, have gosh. these long sincere monologues about this is a good day for us before we survive but it's a bad day for science because we're fighting <laughs> Mother Nature <laughs> and it feels strange like do they know that they're in a bad movie or the, the, the big question about film like this is can you make big budget mainstream Hollywood shark movies after the <laughs> cheap ass kind of shark nados of, yeah. of, of the world and can we trust Jason Statham to lead them after he's made one of his image and Spy. And yeah. so who's in on the joke here? Th-
3: this was my major issue with it. I think they needed to pick a lane and they could have made it a kind of like full bone, really like self-aware and funny shark mm-hmm. movie. Or they could have tried to play it straight. And I don't think it quite does either, mm-hmm. which is maybe why it didn't quite work for me. I think mm-hmm. they tried to make it Oh, it's a little bit of a comment about like uh, science getting involved with nature. Oh, it's it's a little bit funny. Oh, there's some like weird uh, family dynamics going on here yeah. as well, and it was just kind of too many ideas for what should have been a very easygoing like summer go and watch Jason Statham punch a shark film yeah. which is, is all anyone wanted from this movie that was all they wanted, I don't think anyone was looking at this film for like some deeper meaning about the uh, intersection of nature and the yeah, scientific
2: I mean, investment this is very much it, but I think what I did is, is just fully really lent into the shark on Statham action and, and maybe that's <laughs> a, a flaw on my part is that I just chose to ignore the bits that I didn't find <laughs>
3: particularly interesting, um, just tune it out <laughs> there are some great I mean the, the stuff they do with the, uh, the Meg is great. Mm-hmm. I, Genuinely very entertaining. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, obviously, thinking a lot about Jaws, mm-hmm. and you know, in Jaws, you only see the shark for four minutes of screen time. Right. Whereas this, you do get a fair get amount a of shark action. They do lose it a
2: lot for the biggest shark in the world with no known <laughs> predators. They do seem to lose sight of it quite often,
3: <laughs> which is quite frustrating. They spend so much time putting trackers on it, and then like, where's the shark? <laughs>
2: There's, <laughs>
1: There's a lot of jump you know? scares. You yeah. think you'd be able to spot this shark from yeah, from a mile off?
3: But again,
2: I just lent into that because I could think, <laughs> well, that's a bit stupid. That she's in a circular glass cage and it still managed to surprise her I was like do you know what it's a big shark and it's chomping down on her and Stephen's going to come to the rescue and da 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 da
1: it does deliver sort of big budget spectacular scenes of tension and some of the action ideas it is almost four shark movies in one you mentioned Jaws there is a great yeah. set piece where the megalodon it's in the trailer attacks a beach oh, but so there's good. also almost That's deep, great. deep blue sea elements of being on a, on a research facility and then you know beasties being just outside the perspex glass but then also 47 meters down it's it's learned some things from these very low budget restrained enclosed shark mm. horror films it just tries to throw everything in the uh, in at once and also i don't know if it's real technology if it's sci-fi technology <laughs> they have these gliders um that are sort of like star wars spacecraft underwater yeah. so they're just zooming around they're
2: really cool um, and yeah. they're really
1: cool and that suddenly just turns into almost the bits in a Star Wars movie where they're trying to, you know, escape from a giant space slug.
2: I do like, Stath has a few Luke Skywalker moments where the headset comes off and he becomes very zen with himself yeah. and then does something incredibly daring. So yeah. I did enjoy those. Exceedingly
3: enough moments
2: I
1: think there's some joy maybe bad taste joy to be taken from the terrible screenplay
3: oh the yes, screenplay is like shockingly there is. bad mm-hmm. there are some exchanges which you're just you laugh not because it's like it's meant to be funny Just that I'm thinking of this one moment where they kind of they've achieved something and one of the characters just is like no, and like stares right down the camera, like but not, not in a kind of self-aware way. Just in like a this this poor man is trying his best with this not yeah. very good script. I think the supporting cast did
2: doubt some pretty poor lines. I feel like Ray Wilson has the CV to be an incredible villain, like a yeah. real interesting, yeah, dislikeable chap. But mm-hmm. um, he's kind of dealt some pretty poor dialogue, as is Amber Rose, who apparently can't sit in a chair normally, like it was really, really, Ruby Rose, sorry, sorry, Ruby Rose just really irked me in that every scene she had to be in, she had to be slung over something, and gives like yeah. the rock and roll sign instead of the okay sign, it was a very forced kind I, of role there, for her.
1: There a lot of very odd reaction shots in this, and rain Wilson <laughs> there's one, I think he says the word wow three times in a row in a, in a scene <laughs> Yeah, Wilson but style. Like. Ruby Rose is a, is a fascinating addition, she is in Orange is the New Black, and but then there was of a run of films last year where she was playing the sort of sexy supporting chick or (laughs) antagonistic chick in John Wick Chapter 2, the Triple X movie last year. And just yesterday she was announced as uh, the new Batwoman for TV. And I don't think she's very good.
3: No. I don't know who would Um, put a franchise behind her. I think she's got like off-screen charisma. Mm -hmm. Um, She's like got a really sort of strong personality and... This doesn't translate into film for me. Like, and I've seen quite a lot of stuff with her in, and I've never been like, "Oh wow, yeah, she's a really compelling screen presence." I'm like excited to watch her. Um, this one, I can't blame her too much because I don't think anyone apart from Statham <laughs> as much has much to do.
1: It's a very good precocious kid.
3: Oh, the kid's great. Yeah, yeah the, the daughter of uh, one of the scientists is this eight-year-old called May, and she's hilarious. Like yeah. she's just, she's like trying to get Statham and her mum together. And, like she's got this whole <laughs> waggly eyebrow thing going on. Like she's, she's hilarious. I loved her.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, Again, a great wardrobe of clashing patterns. Like, yeah. Every scene, she's changed clothes into another ridiculous outfit.
2: <laughs> Light-up trainers, which I had when I was about seven, I was, <laughs> brought me right back. She's really charming. It's such
1: a trope, or a, you know, uh, uh, you know, from these eighty. 90s movies to throw a kid in there yeah. to add some stakes or some lightness, but she's actually pretty good, I thought. Yeah.
3: I th- I really liked her. You know what else was funny was that how often they lost the kid. Like, as like you know, if you've got a child on this like very expensive, high tech like submarine science station, like keep an eye on the kids. Like, don't just let the kid wander off. Like, they were always surprised. Oh, the kids gone missing again. It's like, how often does this happen? Yeah. Like, this is the thing. Like, there were so many implausible leaps that you had to make with it. But the science behind the shark thing, I mean, the whole thing is they go to the Mariana Trench, which is, I'm obsessed with the Mariana Trench, so I find it fascinating. Like We know more about space than we know about the bottom of the ocean. How cool is that? That's so cool. <laughs> and scary at the same time. And they kind of, I thought that was really interesting, what they were doing with this whole, it's almost a Pacific Rim thing, like, oh, yes, the the, yeah. the horrors are coming from the deep. And that, with climate change, what it is, kind of sounds plausible. It's like... The Meg comes about because there's a brief window where it's warm enough for it to come through the mm-hmm. water. And we're hearing about sharks coming to our waters because it's getting warmer. So I was kind of on board. I was like, OK, cool, yeah, let's let's go for this. Let's either make it totally ridiculous or make it very, like, plausible. And they just Couldn't went find, somewhere weird in the middle. And so we're very fortunate yeah. to
1: have Jason Statham uh, around think... so to dive and save us when these sharks come about.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think he really is the saving grace of this film. I think he he does do the mostest and he's a charmer you know he's got a kind of twinkle in his eye and he does that kind of like oh i'm the only man who can save the world from this giant shark like think really really well mm-hmm. i you know i'm very here for him and in this film and always
1: any final comments beth I think you enjoyed this more than we did.
2: I absolutely (laughs) did. As I say, I'm not by any shape or form calling it a perfect film and it was heavily flawed, but I just chose to take those on the chin and kind of enjoy it for for the the schlocky charm and the, the big moments, the aerial shot of, like, the um, kids on the rubber rings and the the shark underneath it. You know, I live for, for those moments in these films and, mm-hmm. and I wasn't disappointed.
1: I think just to nail down what sort of tone you should expect from this film, we should look at John Turtletub's uh, previous credits, which include the National Treasure series with mm. Nicolas Cage, oh, of course. Sorcerer's Apprentice with Nicolas Cage, and then back in the 90s, Cool Runnings.
2: Oh, my oh, goodness! And
1: While You Were Sleeping. <gasps> Wow. So, what an amazing career.
3: Um, you know people talk about, like, uh, name a director with, like, a run of three perfect like... <laughs> I Think
1: National Treasure, National Treasure, Book of uh, Secrets, and then uh, Sorted Apprentice. There you go. God. Three perfect movies in a row. <laughs> anyway, let's put some scores on this. So, we have uh, in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect. Beth, would you like to go first?
2: Sure. So... Big fan of Statham, not the biggest in the room, clearly, but uh, I find him hugely entertaining. He's super self-deprecating as well and and just so willing to... Not take himself very seriously, and I don't mind sharks. So three for me. In enjoyment, four. So just giddy, gleeful fun for me. Uh, laughing sometimes with, mostly at the film. Um, <laughs> and then three, as I say, undeniably flawed. Some quite reductive characters, but um, all all in all, just like a well crafted B movie that I was
3: I was very glad to sit through for two hours. Didn't feel like two hours either. I was really mm. I was really pleased with that.
1: <laughs> Hannah.
3: Uh, I think it's maybe a four in anticipation just because I thought, you know, this would be like wow. a fun B movie. It looked like a film where you know exactly what you're going to get. Then it kind of slipped to a three in enjoyment. and I think it's probably a two in retrospect. Mm-hmm. I, I I can't see a scenario where I'd watch this again. And it just doesn't deliver on the kind of shock wow factor for me. Mm-hmm. What can I say? Not enough sharks.
1: Not enough It's sharks. my
3: complaint with most movies. Okay.
1: (laughs) release the uh, unrated extra shortcut. So for me, I think this is uh, 2-3-2. I wasn't expecting much for this film, but actually did enjoy it. Maybe not on its own terms, but on my own terms. And uh, I don't think I'll be rushing back to see it. If if I was going to recommend it, I'd say don't pay full whack uh, (laughs) this weekend. But anyway, that was The Meg. Up next, a huge change of gear, really. We're going to a festival favourite from Paraguay, the heiresses. Mm -hmm. Chela and Chiquita are a middle-aged couple living together in in Asuncion, Paraguay, in deteriorating financial circumstances, forced to sell off furniture and family heirlooms to stay afloat. One day, Chiquita is charged with fraud and sent to prison, forcing Chela to live alone and fend for herself for the first time in 30 years. So, this is the first film from Paraguay I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, Not a huge film history over there, I believe. And this won awards at the Berlin Film Festival. Beth, set this one up for us. What did you make of it?
2: Sure. So, yeah, I'm not particularly. Knowledgeable in like South American cinema, especially South American queer cinema. I mm-hmm. don't think I've, I've ever seen a film South American queer films. So mm-hmm. I was I was really really interested to sort of get stuck into this, and what a, what an engaging premise for it. So it's a feature debut, mm-hmm. I understand. So yeah, I was super keen to find out more about this sector of the kind of south american sort of elderly couple one kind of finding her feet for the first time learning Mm. to drive so her partner used to drive her around before she went to prison and kind of learning to do things like that for the first time but i found it really subdued Mm. to the point where it was quite distracting um (laughs) again just just super sold on the on the storyline but um a lot of it takes place in this kind of gloomy setup, mm-hmm. be it in the prison or the car. It doesn't take place across too many, um, different occasions and it started off really promisingly. It starts off with like a party and these women kind of singing in unison and you get these little moments of triumph from the women individually. But yeah, I just think it was organic. It felt incredibly organic, and the the women sort of wore the roles incredibly well. But I just felt it was it was restrained. When I'd like to have seen a little bit more electricity in there.
1: It's always fascinating when we have these pairings on the podcast. We go from something that's this huge, loud, blockbustery film, yeah. followed by what is such a festival type movie. in for me, you you go to a film festival and you see this very quiet, very subdued, very restrained character mood piece where nothing much really happens, at least um, you know, overtly for an hour and a half but you come away with this great sense of a place and a person and a culture yeah and it's really something hannah you wrote the review for the White lies and you focus on the performances especially anna brun's lead performance is something to behold you say yeah
3: that. i did say that so i saw this in berlin when it was at the film festival and i tell you i saw it in the worst possible setting it was in this converted theatre and i was on the I was in The Gods, which is not a good place to watch a film because mm-hmm. you're kind of looking straight down at the yeah. screen. It was a bad setup. And um For
1: such an intimate film. Really, exactly.
3: Yeah. Yeah, no, it was a huge venue because it was like a gala screening. Mm-hmm. So the whole cast and crew were there. That was distracting for me, watching it in such a kind of bad setting. But the film itself, yeah, I really, really liked it. I think Anna Bruhn, who plays Cella, is really magnificent, so... Quiet and so, as I said, restrained. Mm-hmm. She gives this very um, nuanced and, and kind of a sort of performance I haven't seen very much, mm-hmm. where most of her character is kind of in the things she doesn't say and the thing mm-hmm. and just watching her. So they have these sequences, and you see it a bit in the trailer where these wealthy sort of housewives are coming around to buy the possessions from Chela and Chiquita's house. And she's just kind of watching them like pick over her Mm -hmm. life. And her character is so quiet. She has to be able to carry it in sort of the way she moves and the way she looks at at people and the way she observes the world. And it is such a restrained performance from her. But so you get such a sense for where Chella's come from, Mm -hmm. the life she's lived and how she's kind of changing in this new world, how she's having to step outside which is something you get the impression she doesn't like doing very much Mm. and um, we don't see a lot of films about older queer people Mm. for a start especially older queer women which was really interesting they don't really go too much into it which I think is kind of nice as well because they're just like these are just This is just a fact of life, you know. It's very
1: easy to almost miss that because it's in these early scenes. They could just be sisters. They could just be friends, gal pals. um, But (laughs) there are these little markers of intimacy, getting undressed in front of each other and little touches and glances. And that sets up almost the entire emotional tapestry of the film. It's a film that exists in little looks and moments, maybe not Mm. overt dialogue. This isn't like the mega film that's overwritten. This is a film that's so subtle. There's a key scene where a key character, which is a younger woman, comes into play... And it's an incredible shot where it's where we see Chella uh, sitting alone in a corridor and out of focus in the back of a shot, just a pair of legs just come down the staircase and we just see her just perk up slightly. And it's just that little flash of interest, curiosity, desire that speaks volumes in a film like this. It's really fascinating. I
2: can't see it. I think this, maybe I've got an issue with the cinematography. Maybe this is what it is. But there's so... Hell bent on the use of shadow and the use of light or the lack of light. Mm-hmm. I mean, I appreciate that it's it's the subtleties of behaviour and the subtleties of the movement and you know the limited dialogue, but also it's just so gloomy <laughs> for want of a better word. I I find it really hard to engage with something that you know is so shrouded in shadow and it's so they're so determined to kind of withdraw from you that I find it really hard to engage with the story and mm. with the the characters i mean the the performances are obviously fantastic mm-hmm. and you know like little moments where they part at the prison and you know leaving each other for the first time in a very long time and you know it's moments like that where i would have i would have liked to have seen a little bit more both in terms of performance actually being able to see the and visibly, <laughs> but that's the thing. It's
1: it, it's if everything seems so well considered in this film, you know, the lighting of these interiors speaks further volumes about this class structure of Paraguay. These yeah. old uh, families that maybe in previous regimes, previous political moments were rich, hmm. now live in these dusty old houses filled with heirlooms that they don't really need anymore. Old cars they've not driven in decades. Pianos that are out of tune, and they're selling to a young nouveau riche generation reminds me of the book The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters Mm. or The Remains of the Day the sense of a passing of generations and it's a very obvious way to show that by having these very dimly lit gloomy interiors but it shows how cooped up her life has been and how she hasn't had reasons to live for
3: Cello is so particular as well. And this is the thing there's a whole scene where Chiquita is telling the new maid how to like prepare her meals and things. Mm-hmm. And it's all like she has to have this and this and this and this. Like there's a sense that everything within the house is the way it is because that's how she needs it to be. And then she steps outside. And I think outside you see the kind of more like the sunshine mm-hmm. and you get a sense that it is a world of contrasts for her. And that's what I really connected to these tentative steps that she's making into the outside world and the shots of her kind of just driving around Mm. like almost a bit like taxi driver like getting a sense for this world that she's never really felt a part of were really like fascinating to me and the car i think the car is this whole MacGuffin in the film like (laughs) you know she's got this car that her father gave her and chiquita really wants her to sell it to give her the money for prison and um cello kind of really doesn't want to A, it's something she feels attached to because it was a gift from her father, but also it has given her this whole lease of life and it provides a way for her to connect with people and a way for her to have a possibility of escape. It's just such an interesting film to me about... a point of view that I'm very far removed
1: from Mm -hmm. and such an insight into a country I I know very little of and uh, Marcello Martinesi this is his first film he has worked in the TV and film industry in Paraguay for a long time he says he's very openly people refer to this as being part of this South American new wave but he says it's not a new wave in Paraguay it's the first wave Mm -hmm. until 1989 there was no free creative industry because of propaganda and state control and still now it took him years to get this film off the ground and it's still a struggle he needs to find international producing partners so it's really fascinating to watch this film and then just figure out that these films are even when they're not overtly political there's still a struggle to make in some cultures and industries. Mm. So let's wrap this up and put some scores on it. Beth, can you go first?
2: Yeah, so for some of the reasons that you've you've just mentioned, it was a four for me. And, Mm. you know, obviously the attention it received in Berlin and, again, my just complete lack of knowledge of South American Mm. cinema. I was really interested to see what this had to offer. I'd say a three in enjoyment purely on performance. Little else worked for me in quite that way. And then two, it, it hasn't had... Much of a lasting effect for me, it's made me want to go and watch more South American cinema mm-hmm. and and as you know, look into the things you've you've been talking about certainly. But it's just not going to have a lasting effect on me in the way I'd hoped.
1: Mm-hmm. Hannah,
3: I mean, it was a three in anticipation. I say I saw this in Berlin and kind of didn't really know much about it, but it was like a four and a four. It's still, yeah. I you know, I saw this. God had how many months ago? Like six months ago now. and I'm still kind of thinking about it and still remember a lot about it which for a film festival is, is sometimes a bit rare because you watch so much in such a short space of time but this one really yeah mm. it stuck with me and I'm excited to see what uh, Martinetti does next
1: yeah I 344 for me as well I'd love to yeah dig deeper into the south american cinema i think this would play so well alongside uh the chilean film gloria mm. and uh the second mother the brazilian film from a few years ago these films about older women over here we have films like older women and it's julie walters dancing around with a funny accent but yeah. in in south america they're really serious character pieces and uh um i think the arrest is a great addition to that tradition it sounds like it's a Recommendation from me and Hannah, less so from Beth, (laughs) but that's the heiresses. Up next, Film Club, and this week we're going to f*** you gently with a chainsaw. It's Heather's.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's has the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.
1: So the dark teen comedy Heathers celebrates its 30th anniversary this year and uh, there's a new 4K restoration in cinemas this week. The film stars Winona Ryder and Christian Slater in star-making roles as two teens taking on the jocks and popular kids at their high school using some very R-rated methods. Here's a clip from the scene in which our two heroes meet.
0: Hello, Jason Dean. Uh, Greetings and salutations. you a Heather?
2: No, I'm a Veronica. Sawyer. This may seem like a really stupid question. And there are no stupid questions. You inherit five million dollars the same day aliens land on the Earth and say they're gonna blow it up in two days. What do you do?
1: <sighs> well, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard.
0: Who's that guy in the coat? think he is anyways? Bo Diddley? Veronica's a new act, no doubt. Uh, I don't know. Probably row out to the middle of a lake somewhere. Bring along a bottle of tequila, my sax, and uh, some buck. How oh, very
1: oh, I, I love that clip, Christian Slater and Winona Ryder. There. So it's been thirty years since this film's been released, and it's been a cult film in that time. Since uh, I guess we should assess what the damage is in the <laughs> intervening years. Clever. Um, Beth, had you seen this film before?
2: Yes, I had. Not recently at all. So I was really, I was really excited to come back and watch this um, film. I feel like Film Club does put me through the run sometimes (laughs) with some of its choices. But I was super excited when I found it was Heather's. Um, And I've read a lot about it as well. I think the, think pieces have come thick and fast around this mm-hmm. um, anniversary. So I've read a lot of those as well. I mean the guts of it are still there in a way that I really love. I think the writing is so spectacular in places mm-hmm. as, you know, as you've quipped <laughs> as an introduction here. And I've seen, you know, kind of shadows of it in some of my favourite teen films. Things like Drop Dead Gorgeous from the from the nineties, yeah. uh, written by Lorna Williams, and more recently Thoroughbreds I really enjoyed, mm. um, which was Corey Finley's debut, which um, both quite cutting but, you know, but I feel like with those films, they both managed to kind of salvage a friendship amongst the carnage. Whereas Heather's is every man for themselves, every
1: girl cynical, for themselves. It's very cynical, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. A general kind of um, opinion that's been had is, is perhaps this film wouldn't have been made in today's climate hmm. because of the subject matter.
3: But I would. Well, that's funny. Yeah.
2: It's really worth
1: discussing. Um, yeah. um,
3: they remade Heather's as a TV show and.
1: And they made the Heather's a uh, sort of like a ethnically diverse uh, crew in the TV series. In didn't the TV they? series, yeah. yeah.
3: They had a genderqueer Heather. They yeah. had a. What's the polite way of putting this? They had a. Heather uh, of colour. A, they had a Heather of colour who was um, plus size and oh, yeah. it was cancelled in the wake. Of, and now this is how bad it is. I can't remember which school shooting it was oh, that caused them bro. to cancel wow. Heather's, but one of them, because they felt it was insensitive to have a television show focusing on school shootings, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of rightly so. But the TV series was criticized. It aired internationally and it was criticized for kind of being a baby boomer's wet dream. It's mm-hmm. basically like, oh, look at all these diverse kids. Look how bad they are. <laughs> like, you know. Um, and yeah. it, I think this is why the original is always the best because it it deals with it better than anything else and updating it wouldn't work. I think it's such a product of its time, but in a great way. It's still as sharp and as cutting as it was the day it was
1: made. It's such an interesting product of its time because thinking about it in context, it's such a reaction against what was seen as teen movies at that point, mm. either the sort of slightly buttoned up politeness of John Hughes, the, the everybody's <laughs> the same cosiness, yeah. or the, the sort of frat house, animal house, sort of weird science comedy about boys and their erections. And this is so rejecting of that to the yeah. point where, you know, profanity laden screenplay, death and murder and everything. Such anything goes. a
3: line right at the end where Winona Ryder confronts uh, Christian Slater and... The, having this face off and she says I've had enough of cool guys like you and <laughs> or, or I've had enough of cool guys and that kind of sums it up mm. it's it's one of those rare films where it's written by a man and directed by a man but I think it really kind of captures something about being a 17, 18 year old girl mm. just being done with it all just being done with the politics of high school just being done with the kind of relentless sexism and being treated like an object and Oh, God, I just just love it so much. I think it's really... I watched this for the first time when I was about 15. I've seen it, you know, kind of countless times Mm. since then. It really, to me, like speaks to that kind of the the horrible experience of being a teenager and I'd love to
2: like perfect the Winona Ryder eye roll that um (sighs) she does carry the film in such a a glorious way and the costumes I think we need to touch on as well because they wear them with such agency like you would not see me wearing blue tights and a matching blue skirt in this day and age but (laughs) but then I think there is also something to be say and some of it is stated in a way that I just don't think would translate today I actually find Christian Slater pretty awful now. Could you imagine a contemporary Christian Slater? He wouldn't be endearing at all. He'd be an absolute <laughs> nightmare. Well, the, so hot though. The, the,
3: the, the, <laughs>
2: sorry. The, the,
1: the film has this narrative fulcrum at the, at the end of the second act where you realise that this cool guy is actually you know, quite toxic in his behaviour. But really now we see a, a kid in a trench coat bringing a gun to school and he's not cool. He's, yeah. <laughs> he's the problem. Well you know?
2: this he, is it. And then the kind of, I was really quite shocked, I'd forgotten about the date rape scene and the way that we're known to sort of roll eyes and leaves them to it. And yeah. you just think... And it's all part of the joke, you know. When one of those characters gets killed, and she says, "Oh, his legacy is just going to be date rapes and AIDS jokes," and mm-hmm. um, it really does make you cringe in a way that you thought well, that was the punchline. And of course, it was a different time, but I just think, in terms of how it's translated today, it just doesn't hold up in a it's, way that it's is particularly forgiving. Like yeah.
1: one of the elements of the discourse right now, especially online discourse, is this sort of younger millennial generation Z type kids discovering, you know, artifacts, pop culture-wise from yeah. the 90s yeah. and the 80s, like Friends and saying Friends is problematic. I'd yeah, love to know yeah. what they think of Heathers because it's such a product of that proto-Generation X disaffectedness and cynicism with the world, yeah. hating parents, hating society, hating everybody and just being like, I'm sick of all this. Yeah, um, There's no actual political engagement there, it's whereas now it would be fighting to change things, I yeah. imagine. It's such well,
3: a- this is why I think the remake didn't really work because they were trying to take this kind of core of Heathers, which is just f- the world, mm. and... Apply it to characters who were designed to kind of encompass all these millennial tropes, like oh, oh, they know about politics, all oh, that they're, they're, you know, all oh, they're in touch with their gender and their sexuality, and it's just it kind of misses the point completely. I think there's something to be said about
2: how teen films are now in that they're just. I love teen films. I wish I had mm. these films growing up in a way because you've got films like Love, Simon, you've got Edge of Seventeen oh, and like Edge yeah. of Seventeen
3: Best. is... So I watched that for the first time this weekend. I just want to give it a shout-out because it's on Netflix, I think. It's incredible. It's so good. It's Hayley Steinfeld. In, yeah, it, it's one of those films that kind of, like, I think, passed a lot of people by. Mm. It's so sad. It's a really like heartbreaking film exactly. about being a teenage girl in... It's kind of a nice thing to look at in comparison to Heather's because Heather's is so kind of like biting and Edge well, of Seventeen. Very funny, but also just really like gut-wrenchingly sad. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just want to say go away and watch that. If you haven't seen it. It's so good. Well, this is it. And they're affirmative and forgiving, I
2: think, yes. in a way. But without sacrificing that energy or that humour that comes from the earlier films that I, I love as well. So, you know, Lady Bird... I mean, they cut so close to the bone in a way that like, <laughs> I, I used to have breakdowns to, you know, cinematic orchestra and cars. I, absolutely. Yeah. So it's just great to have these kind of self-deprecating, but also, yeah, essentially forgiving films. And I think that's perhaps why I find had this to be quite shocking in a new industry of teen films that are a lot more affirmative and welcoming.
1: Well, maybe it's similar to just watching that thing you loved when you were a teenager and being slightly disappointed that actually, mm. oh, there are certain elements here that don't stand up, mm. but some stuff does still play so cool. well. Cool. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, not. Least at least Winona Ryder and Christian Slater, who were just arriving here fully formed as icons. Oh, yeah, yeah.
3: I, mean, I mean, Winona Ryder, like you know, Hollywood really did her dirty. She went through some horrible stuff, and they kind of just turned their back on her. And I'm really glad she's kind of having this renaissance now, where you know she's done Stranger Things, she's got stuff in the pipeline. Because I think she's so talented and this film is just it's just such a marvel mm. to watch her in it and every
1: every frame every yeah. frame
3: you know she really carries it and sells it and i, I buy it all mm. you know i <laughs> one of my favorite quotes of all time which i related to a lot as a teenager is you have this kind of voiceover where she's writing in her diary and she says dear diary my teenage now has a body count <laughs> which is such a kind of like literal in her sense but like God, yeah. I mean, that's being a teenager is kind of projecting your insecurities on everyone else, and I'll tell you right that some of this does not necessarily aged well, but it is kind of essential viewing to understand mm-hmm. teen movies. I think you have to kind of look at the canon, and this oh, is yeah. irrevocably part of the canon.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's such a good. The end points to that '80s teen movie wave, like yeah. almost it's where the wave breaks. Yeah, and then you can see they're taking on board David Lynch and the elements of Blue Velvet here, and particularly the the lighting choices throughout and the color, the use of color. It's taking on John Waters. There's elements of hairspray in there as well. Oh yeah, but mm. then it's such a you can see the '90s, you know, the Generation X. And then the entirety of Winona Ryder's career, in a way, coming straight out, you can see Reality Bites.
0: Mm. You
1: can see Edward Tissahans and Beetlejuice oh. is the same year as this. It's amazing to think that she made both back to back. Yeah. It's really something. I've never seen this with an audience at the cinema. I've only seen it at home. Yeah, no. So yeah, I, that, that's right. what I'd like to see, to see how well those lines play, because it's I, a really dense I screenplay. I highly
3: recommend, if anyone's in London, I know they're showing it at Prince Charles Cinema, and that's always a good crowd. So mm-hmm. get yourselves down there. I mean... I do think there's something to be said for a kind of communal watching of this because mm-hmm. it is, especially with an older audience, who kind of might be picking it up after being a teenager and kind yeah. of, you know... I think my mum turned me on to it, who would have been the right kind of age right. for it when it came out. and um, I don't think they make them like this anymore, but that's probably mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you look at teen films coming out today and I think you can kind of see the trajectory and I think it's nice we've moved on to a place where you don't have to kind of be that angry at the world. You can find the nuance and you can learn how to work through that anger. And thank God for Winona Ryder. This is my kind of thing. I think like that's something point, we, can all, you know? we can all get
1: behind. <laughs> So if you do go and see Heather's this weekend, it's out on release, 4K restoration. Let us know what you think the usual channels at LW Lies on Twitter, truth and movies at TCO via email, or at the comments section on LW slash podcast. So next week, we have another interesting triple bill. We have The Equalizer 2. Denzel Washington, the equalizer. The sequelizer. Spo- spoiling my puns for next week's intro. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, Denzel Washington is back, ramsacking home base for all sorts of homemade <laughs> weapons. I'm sure. Then it's uh, Mark Cousins' documentary, The Eyes of Orson Welles, and then Film Club is an Orson Welles special. His uh, sort of tricksy pseudo-documentary, F for Fake.
3: So good. Yeah, I love it. I can't for
1: wait to rewatch that.
0: Our works in stone, in paint, in print are spared, some of them for a few decades or a millennium or two, but everything must finally fall in war or wear away into the ultimate and universal ash. The triumphs and the frauds, the treasures and the fakes, a fact of life. We're going to die. Be of good heart. Cry the dead artists out of the living past. Our songs will all be silenced. But what of it? Go on singing. Maybe a man's name doesn't matter
1: all that much. Any other business uh, on the Little White Lies side, Hannah?
3: Yeah, so um, on Tuesday, next Tuesday, if you're around London, if you're around South London in particular, we're hosting a screening of The Miseducation of Cameron Post at Rooftop Film Club. It's our cover film for Little White Lies 76. It's a beautiful film. I've seen it twice now and still kind of rattling around my brain. Mm -hmm. I will be there doing Q&A with director Desiree Akavan, who is, she's an absolute gem and... We'd love to see some listeners down there. It's just about sold out, but there are still some tickets left. So please do come down and watch the film. Mm. And, you know, say hi if you see me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always nice to kind of meet the people who listen to us. <laughs> Spam yeah. me off every
1: week. We do also have the White Lies events coming up at Somerset House, don't we? As part we, of Film for Summer Screen do. behind the screen.
3: Yeah, we, we, so from next Wednesday till the Wednesday after that, whenever that is, 15th to the 22nd, we'll mm-hmm. be down there during the print Tearing It Up exhibition. So we'll be taking over a room with all things Little White Lies. We're hosting some events as part of that. You can find out more on the Somerset House website. But we're also doing behind-the-screen events in association with Film4. So
1: I have those details right here. as w- the... Art of discovering movies panel with Mubi. Yes. That's on the 16th of August.
3: Featuring our very own David Jenkins and, and Kelly, uh, Weston. Kelly Weston who you may have heard last week on the podcast. Mm. That will be really a really good sort of way to discover film amongst the many multitudes of streaming services mm. out there. And then Michael and I will be down there for a very live, a very live Truth (laughs) and Movies.
1: In the meat space, we'll be recording Truth and Movies on the 22nd. Yeah, so... further details at SomersetHouse.org.uk.
3: Yeah, get your tickets and come down and shout at us in person instead of (laughs) the comment section, you know.
1: Maybe we can just have a chat about your Jason Statham podcast instead.
3: Uh, You know, if anyone wants to fund that, I'm available.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Beth, you also have an event coming up at Somerset House, don't you?
3: Yeah,
2: so I um, co-run an outfit called the Vestral Test Fest. Also, it worth noting. I think every film this week has passed the Bestial Test, which was hey, really great, including the Meg. Even the Meg, <laughs> amazing. And Fantastic. as does this podcast. Is hey. um, so yeah, I co-run a, a programming outfit called the Bestial Test Fest, which is an ongoing celebration of women and film. And I will be in conversation with the producer Elizabeth Carlson, who has got the most incredible catalogue of work she has worked on things like the crying game and made in dagenham carol which is going to be playing in the courtyard after the in conversation and then more recently on Chesel beach mm. and she's also working on a film called colette which is coming out with keira knightley right. so i will be talking with her behind the screen that's on the 15th next week next wednesday so, a so week hardcore
1: carol fans should attend <laughs> and i'd like to make a just a quick plug For my little side project, Ghibliotech, the Studio Ghibli podcast, uh, which is now up and running finally after iTunes approved us. We are two episodes in and the third episode goes up on Friday. It's about my neighbour Totoro and we have a very special guest, Beth Webb.
2: Hello. (laughs) (laughs) On that podcast.
1: Uh, That should be available wherever you get your podcasts now. Um, We're running a a pilot season of six episodes, diving into some of the big hits and deep cuts of the Ghibli catalogue and um, go and have a listen if you like those sorts of things. Anyway, which just leaves me to say thank you to Beth Webb for joining me today. Thank you, Michael. And thanks as well to Hannah Woodhead. Thank you, Michael. I've been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production.